There has to be some compelling reason to motivate strangers to want to give money to my clients. Build a strong infrastructure. When the clients begin to roll in, you will have more time for quality casework. Our brains are hardwired to accept that through storytelling. Welcome to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io, the legal marketing agency that works harder than the competition. Each week, you get insights and wisdom from some of the best in the industry. Hit that follow button so that you never miss an episode. All right, let's dive in. To build a successful firm from the ground up, you need a solid foundation. Just three years ago, Joseph Gates struck out on his own in Little Rock, Arkansas to open Gates Law Firm. He built his firm on stable personal finances, bolstered by a community of peers, and powered by a relentless drive to improve his craft. On today's episode, Joseph shares the best way to prepare for opening a firm and how bar associations help fuel his growth, both as an attorney and a business owner. Joseph is continually improving his skills as a trial lawyer. He shares the simple yet incredibly effective question that helped level up his depositions. And he makes an impassioned case for limiting confidentiality for personal injury law. Here's Joseph Gates, owner of Gates Law Firm. I went to school at Louisiana Tech for college and I got a psychology degree. What do you get with a psychology degree? You buy more school is what you get because there's nothing you can do with a bachelor's. And so Sometime around junior year, I decided, hey, I'll just take the LSAT and let's see what happens. Did not do well my first time, but tried again and did pretty well and got accepted at the University of Arkansas, which is growing up in South Arkansas, I, I, I just had to get a degree with a Razorback on it. Gosh, uh, the Razorbacks. I watched a little bit of Razorback uh, basketball. But any, oh, anyways, yeah. that's if it was the 90s, you know, we had Corliss Williamson was a big deal. That's who it was. Yeah. Razorback basketball was incredible <laughs> back then. So Gates Law Firm, it's fairly new practice. You opened in 2020 and you worked for, uh, I believe, a couple firms and you decided to open your own firm. What was that moment that you made the decision like, hey, I'm ready. I'm going to open my own firm. I started my career at a, an advertising firm, did there for three years, got my teeth kicked in at some jury trials. And I was like, I need more mentorship. And so I joined uh, a very seasoned attorney, uh, Paul Bird, and practiced with him for about seven years. Throughout that time, we were a very small shop. So I also did some admin stuff. And I built confidence that I could handle some of the admin stuff because as an owner, it, you know, I, I wear my lawyer hat maybe a third of the time. Going through that experience, I got confidence on the legal side my, with my skill sets on that and then had some more confidence that I could handle the admin side. It was something I probably always wanted to do uh, is to you know own my own business, be my own boss and uh, finally made the plunge during the middle of COVID because why not? Yeah, amazing. Perfect timing. We got to work on the business a little bit more since you couldn't take as many cases to trial, honestly. To that point, it, it helped me. So I officially opened in October of 2020, and that the rest of the year I just I just was just building out my processes, and then really started litigating cases. You know, January of 2021. But I spent that three months really working on the infrastructure, and I think that paid dividends um, that I still have today. There are many attorneys listening. They're probably considering opening their own practice. Maybe they're. Uh an excellent trial attorney at a, at a firm that's been around or they're considering it. What were some of your biggest hurdles and how did you overcome them? And, and also what good habits did you put into place? The biggest hurdle and, you know, is how can I afford to litigate the cases? My personal finances were, were in a good place. I mean, at this point, the only debt we have is our house. So, you know, 
strongly recommend anyone that's thinking about owning a business is really get your personal finances in order first because not only is that just it's going to be lean, uh, which everyone that does personal injury understands the feast and famine of it, of it can take years to really see a return on a case. It helped me having the other stuff put together, one, because then I could go to a bank and get a line of credit, which is what, which what I did. I know there's other vendors that cater to personal injury uh, attorneys, and that could be a good way. And so if you got your personal stuff, because ultimately it's you're going to be the one signing the, the guarantee. If they look at that and it all looks okay, you'll you likely get um, get a loan. Being a trial attorney, more is it is it for the cost involved, or like the expert witnesses, the tech, and things like that, or and a combination of that and the cash flow? Sure, sure. And unlike Perry Mason, we don't have one case at a time. Uh, we've got multiple cases, and so it's juggling. When do I take the deposition? Because I got to pay the fees on flying the expert in, uh, and it may you know there'll be multiple cases with experts, and so. Yeah, I mean, it's primarily just juggling all of that as you're moving along. Being a new firm, how are you positioning yourself to get cases? How are you getting traction early on? Before I opened my firm, I was extremely involved in the trial lawyer organizations. I'm in Arkansas. We have a small community, and I'm very involved in the Arkansas Trial Lawyers Association, currently serving on the EC uh, and the board. But I'm also very involved in uh, AAJ, the American Association for Justice. Those organizations have been foundational and fundamental. I can't imagine practice without them. Uh, not only is it just the uh, finding the contact, the contacts, but it's also the resources and really the the mission, like something that not everyone appreciates in our preamble to uh, our ethical canon is, you know, we have a duty to our client, but we also have a duty to the public for public safety. And I think being involved in trial lawyer organizations have helped raise awareness for me about the legislative aspect because they're super involved at the capital, uh, either state capital or D.C., uh, of lobbying and make sure we can we can have a, a access to the courthouse. Because I could be the best lawyer I want to, but if I don't have a way to show my skill set in the courtroom setting, then it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. So you're on the faculty at AAJ. You have an amazing trial experience. Uh, you're an amazing trial attorney. You really enjoy those depots. How can an attorney become better? You know, how do you prepare for a deposition to identify and close any potential loopholes or inconsistencies in the testimony? To prepare for a deposition, really try to think the end in mind. Uh, most cases, I mean, everyone that, that does personal injury can appreciate this. Most cases resolve. Uh, most cases don't go to trial. But what we try to do here is think of the end and work backwards. So think of, all right, what proof am, am I trying to prove? So look at the jury instructions. It's not always clean, but it's designed for a judge to read to the jury what the complex law is. And so start there and figure out, uh, okay, what are the elements to prove? But also think of it, so that's like for the judge, like so I can Prove the, the legal stuff to get past the judge. But what's also the compelling side for the jury? Because at the end of the day, what we're, we're asking people for money. And that's, especially in the South, that's taboo and very uncomfortable. So there has to be some compelling reason uh, to motivate strangers to want to give money to my clients. And so I think as I think through that, I'm trying to craft not only the legal side, but also the, the, the story side and weave that into the depositions. 
I saw that you're fond of using uh, NLP, the neuro linguistic programming techniques. Does that come into place in terms of the story or is that the, the cross examination? Like, where does that come in? It is storytelling at the end of the day. I mean, foundational to us being humans and us being able to survive was to able to communicate information in an effective way. And where our brains are hardwired to accept that through storytelling. So I just yesterday bought a, sto- uh, a screenwriting book on storytelling that, you know, I'm not going to write a screenplay or anything, but I, I'm going to try to take principles out of that and apply that in the real world. So, yeah, is that the classic like hero's journey, right? Where yeah. you got these setbacks and you're driving this whole painting this picture of the adversity to try to clatch on to things like uh Yes, that that too. And then it will depend on the case. And not every case is going to fit in a cookie cutter way. There are themes that you can see throughout in a particular case. You know, it could be a trucking company prioritizing their profits over safety. And so greed is a very foundational sin. And so that is a, a good way to bring that out through depositions of uh, corporate executives of like, OK, so how... Why did you make this decision to put this driver there when you knew it was going to he had to speed to get to where he's going? Well, the reason why is because we got to move freight. If we're not moving freight, we're not making money. But there's a safe way to do that, too. And they chose not to to do the safe way. If you want to be better, ask better questions. Joseph is an expert in taking depositions. And one of his favorite questions draws the power from simplicity. What else? What else is a great question to ask when you're trying to, here's an example. I will say a general rule, a driver should watch where they're going. Duh. Yeah, sure. Is that an important rule? Yes. Why? Because blah, 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 blah. What else? What else is implying that there is more out there and it forces, like you're forcing me to try to explain something to you. What else implies that there's something else? And so, well, as we teach at the college, I'll I'll say what else three or four times and keep eliciting more information because it implies that there's more to be gained, that, that there's more out there. How do you source expert witnesses? What goes into, because I imagine they're incremental in, in some cases to the verdict you're going to receive. Like, like, where do you go about getting these expert witnesses? They have expert witness websites. Yeah. You know, I'm an SEO guy. That's a foundational question. Where can I get testimony. Now, uh, to analyze that, I've got to ask myself, is this something a lay person cannot testify to? And so if there's a technical, scientific or medical component to the testimony that I'm trying to get, the odds are I need an expert. There are great resources out there. One beneficial way is to figure out if if, if it's a product liability case or something and there's an industry standard, there's the ASTM uh, standard. Try to figure out who's on that committee and see if they will, someone on the committee would be willing to testify. But the best resources are, are joining the listservs and, and joining the community and asking someone else, <laughs> uh, like yeah. someone that, uh, that has had a similar case and like, hey, who did you use as your expert? Uh, and the, the sharing aspect is critical because these cases usually don't happen in a vacuum. Like if a bad event, like if a product failed, odds are that not just this, it happened just this one time. And if it's like a trucking case or something, the behavior behind that will probably, you know, carry across more than just one one event. So trying to figure out 
who could be qualified to testify to that. If there's any standards, check to see if anyone on the committee would be willing to testify, you know, ask other lawyers. There are services that are available. And if it's a medical thing, uh, try to try to see if like a treating physician would be willing to testify. And sometimes that can be hard, but there are services out there that you can communicate with who also do the sourcing for us as well. And I use those as well. Limiting confidentiality, especially in personal injury cases, is a passion for Joseph. He explains why it's important for clients and for the public. Part of our canon is not only a duty to our client and to the profession, but we have a duty to the public. Litigation is a public forum. It's embedded in the Seventh Amendment, right, to trial by jury. Jury implies public. When you thrust confidentiality into the public forum, there has to be a very compelling reason. The problem is for lawyers like us, where we have a client who desperately wants to be made whole, and then you have the, the opponent who wants to keep everything quiet, what do you do? You've got a client here who needs to be made whole, uh, but you get, you're getting pressure to just sign it. And just so I recognize that it is very, it's a tough choice to make. And that's where our judiciary needs to step up and say, hey, no, we can't just have blanket confidentiality because the public needs to know what's going on out there. Yeah. So to the extreme, does that impact things and how you say market your firm on the extreme case of something like reviews, like maybe keeping reviews anonymous? Are you talking about the specifics in the case more? And because I would imagine some of your clients may inadvertently give up confidentiality and talk about things. Here's an example. Common cases where before we can get documents, which we need documents for our depositions and we need to do the depositions or trial and because odds are we're not going to go to trial. And that's the way where we really can make hay uh, before we can get the documents to help us in the deposition. The defense hands us a proposed protective order, which puts everything under seal. The client is like, what do I care? I, I I just need to be made whole. Now, some will care about like they're, they're, no one's going to tell them not to tell their story. But for the documents that are needed to prove up the case, they're going to want to have that covered or they want you to destroy the documents after the case is over. Uh, thankfully, there are ethical opinions out there, which I have all the resources on that, that say you can't ask us to destroy documents. And there's actually a high hurdle to have confidentiality. Like if it is a trade secret, like we have a judge in Arkansas, a federal judge in Arkansas that says, you know what should be under confidentiality? The secret recipe to Coca-Cola. That, yeah, sure. Like that, but just common safety stuff. Like what are your safety principles? No. I mean, that's, why should that, why should that be under confidentiality? Or if you've got a design of a crap product that hurts someone, but who cares? Like it's not like anyone's going to steal that Anyway, so but they desire the confidentiality to limit exposure and not tell the world what's really going on. At the end of the day, the main reason why they want confidentiality is because, you know, what's good evidence, a prior similar incident. Uh, And so because then that's notice and that's, oh, you knew you had a problem and you chose to do nothing about it. So then someone else got hurt. And so that actually builds in punitive damages to at the end of the day for a corporation, we can't throw a corporation in jail. We can only assess money damages and money will motivate behavior. And so by putting confidentiality on the facts of the case or the documents that would prevent the subsequent attorney from actually using that information in their case. And that's what that's what they want. And because, like I said, knowing a defendant knew they had a prior event and then did nothing about it, 
stirs up some righteous anger, which is a storytelling thing that yeah. we talked about earlier, right? Uh, and because agreed and all of that. What's next for your firm and where can people go to connect with you? I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas, lived in Arkansas my whole life, proud razor back, even when they break my heart. Uh, but my website's gateslawpllc.com, my email, gates at gateslawpllc.com. I am a firm believer of sharing uh, information, so if the, I'm happy to share whatever I have. If anyone needs any help on how to fight uh, overly broad protective orders, uh, I, I've got those resources because I've done the research and I've fought those battles. So happy to, to share that. What's next is I just had a good mediation fr uh, Friday, so I'm trying to figure out what, what to do with myself this week. So I, you know, just keep rocking and rolling, man. Thanks so much for Joseph for sharing his wisdom today. Let's hit the takeaways. Time for the pinpoints. Get involved. Connect with your peers. Join bar associations, conferences, masterminds, and professional networks to level up. Make new connections and offer what you have learned along the way. Everyone has something valuable to share. Here at PIM, we want this community to thrive. Those organizations have been foundational and fundamental. I can't imagine practice without them. Uh, not only is it just the, the contacts, but it's also the resources and really the, the mission. Tell a compelling story. Jurors are human. They want to connect and emphasize, not just process facts. Money may be a taboo subject where you are, so take the time to understand social norms for your jurors. What life experiences or beliefs might influence how they view your request? Then craft a story that aligns with their values. Show how this money can help make your client whole again. Illustrate how it will improve their life. If you convey true empathy to your client's suffering and clearly explain how damages will right the scales of justice, jurors can get past these initial taboos. So look at the jury instructions. It's not always clean, but it's designed for a judge to read to the jury what the complex law is. And so start there and figure out, uh, okay, what are the elements to prove? But also think of it, so that's like for the judge, like so I can Proof the, the legal stuff to get past the judge, but what's also the compelling side for the jury? Ask better questions. When taking depositions, finding the right questions can take trial and error, but Joseph falls back on the simple yet powerful question, what else, to get the most information. What else? What else is implying that there is more out there and it forces, like you're forcing me to try to explain something to you, what else implies that there's something else? And so, well, as we teach at the college, I'll I'll say what else three or four times and keep eliciting more information because that implies that there's more to be gained, that, that there's more out there. For more information about Joseph, check out the show notes. While you're there, please hit that follow button so that you never miss an episode of Personal Injury Mastermind with me, Chris Stryer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging out. See you next time. I'm out.